This episode of the TriDoc Podcast is brought to you by Life Sport Coaching, led by Ironman Master Coach Lance Watson. Life Sport Coaching has coaches all over the world, including the TriDoc. Our coaches bring diverse backgrounds and a wealth of experience to help you reach your triathlon and multi-sport goals. If you are ready to take your racing to the next level, consider Life Sport Coaching, where you can meet other athletes in group workouts and camps, and consult with our team nutritionist. Learn more at lifesportcoaching.com. Hello, and welcome once again to another episode of the TriDoc Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sankoff, the TriDoc, an emergency physician, triathlon coach, and multiple Ironman finisher, coming to you from beautiful, sunny Denver, Colorado. More and more, as triathletes, we're becoming data hounds. With the improvement of technology and its ability to inform us on so many metrics related to our training and racing, triathletes have become proficient in interpreting things like heart rate, power output, cadence, distance per stroke, and so many other mathematical constructs related to the numbers that our wrist and frame-mounted tech can spit out. Whether or not any or all of that is actually helping anyone is debated by some, but I think that most would agree that it has helped inform our training and made athletes and coaches who understand the principles underlying it better at all aspects of training, racing, and recovery. But, as everyone knows, new tech is obsolete by the time you get it out of the package, and the march of progress with its ability to miniaturize and portableize nearly everything means that there is always something new and exciting just around the corner. Devices, normally intended for healthcare, are increasingly finding their way into the consumer market, and many are aimed squarely at endurance athletes with the promise of providing all kinds of new metrics. But how much of this information is really relevant, and how much of it is just noise? Well, recently I fielded a question on Facebook from an athlete wanting to know which portable pulse oximeter was best for a triathlete, and as an afterthought, the questioner wondered, was this really even necessary? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm a firm believer in data in training, and I, like many other athletes and coaches who've been around for a while, make use of quite a lot of it. But I have a pretty specific approach to different kinds of data, and it's an approach that I adapted from how I evaluate patients in my practice as an emergency physician. You see, when a patient comes into the emergency department, my medical students and residents have a tendency to order an ungodly amount of tests, in the false belief that more information, in the form of data, is somehow going to be useful. But the reality is that when you approach patients in this way, what you end up with is kind of just a whole lot of noise, and it becomes really difficult to sift through all of it in order to find the signal of what is actually important and will help you lead to a diagnosis. And so, I preach to my residents what I call Sankoff's Paradigm of Lab Testing, which states quite simply that labs should be ordered on a patient in only two circumstances. First, because the answer that those labs will provide is something that you don't already know and actually want to. And second, because knowing that answer is going to influence your decision making. Well, the same thing can be said for data from training. There's really only two reasons to gather data while training, and they are the exact same two reasons in my paradigm of lab testing. First, because you don't already know the answer and actually care what that answer is, and second, because the data point that you obtain is going to let you change something that will influence how you train, race, or recover. Now, much of the data tracking that is starting to become available to triathletes is very fancy and sounds super interesting, but at the end of the day, simply doesn't meet either of those two requirements. And on today's podcast, I'm going to talk about one of them. 
Glucose monitoring is something that is extremely important for diabetics who require this information in order to know how they manage their insulin dosing. But now the technology used for continuous glucose monitoring and insulin pumps is being adapted for athletes with the promise that knowing how your glucose fluctuates during training can improve your fueling and performance. So what does the science say about this? And does this kind of monitoring satisfy Sankoff's paradigm of training data? Well, we're going to find out in short order. Later on in the program, Jason Friedman is a successful ultra runner with national successes at several distances and was the age group champion for the 100k event. Jason also has a successful and entertaining podcast called The Pain Cave, on which he discusses running with various guests from around the world of his sport. He joins me to discuss how he came to ultra running, how ultra runners manage to stay injury free, and among other subjects, how ultra runners view the Barclay Marathon, one of the few ultra distance events that has become quite famous among most triathletes because of the Netflix documentary of a few years ago. If you enjoy the TriDoc podcast and find the content helpful to your training, racing, and recovery, I hope that you'll consider a visit to my Patreon page, where you can learn how to become a supporter and get access to even more content. Bonus content is up there now, and more is being added all the time. All the information on the different tiers of support and what each gets you can be found at patreon.com forward slash Podcast. And thank you so much for in advance for considering. As I mentioned at the top of the program, triathletes are very much into collecting data and metrics, and for the most part with good reason. But as I also said, sometimes data does not necessarily inform in a meaningful way, and instead just becomes more background noise. So how can we know if the latest technology is really the end-all be-all that it claims to be, or if it's just one more useless gadget that we're going to spend a lot of money on hoping for a big return, but instead end up with just a whole lot of numbers that we don't really know what to do about? Recently, you may have seen or heard about the latest entry into this space, continuous glucose monitoring. There have been a few very high-profile triathletes posting on their social media about how they are trialing these devices, but relatively little in the way of what they are getting out of this information, or how it's informing their training. Before I get into the science that either supports or refutes the use of these devices, we need to first understand the basic physiology of glucose control in the body, and then we can discuss whether or not monitoring it really makes any sense. I don't think that I'm sharing any earth-shattering news when I tell you that we all need to eat in order to survive. The nutrients that we take in when we eat serves many purposes, but one of the principal ones is to provide metabolic fuel for our cells so that they can do all of the things that they do on an ongoing basis. Fuel comes in many forms, but the preferred form for all of our cells is glucose, and that's obtained through the consumption of carbohydrates. Now, most of our cells can make use of alternative fuels, like free fatty acids or even ketones, but these are much less efficient fuels, and so glucose is always preferred. But some cells, specifically those in highly metabolically active tissues such as the heart, nerves, kidneys, and white blood cells, can only make use of glucose. And this is really important to remember. It's going to come back as a theme a couple more times. Now, as a consequence of this, the body has developed a means of ensuring that when there is a shortage of glucose available, those cells that can avail themselves of alternative fuels are not going to use what glucose is available, so that the cells that are glucose-dependent have first dibs. 
Conversely, when glucose is plentiful, the same system ensures that all cells get access to the preferred fuel. The means by which this is tightly controlled is through the secretion of insulin by the pancreas when glucose is plentiful and counter-regulatory hormones like glucagon when it is not. So now, here's the key to understanding how these hormones work. Insulin is required for cells to be able to access glucose that's in the blood. So muscle cells, bone cells, cells in your skin, all of which like to use glucose, can only use it whenever insulin is around. Now, the mandatory users of glucose, the cells in the heart, the kidney, and the brain, they don't need insulin. They can use glucose all the time. So without insulin, only those tissues, the heart, the kidney, the brain, etc., they can use the glucose. All the other ones that require insulin, they have to make use of alternative fuels. So let's see how this works in practice. Consider the situation after you've just eaten. In this setting, the glucose level in your blood is high. So the pancreas secretes insulin, and all of your cells get to take up the glucose and use it as their fuel. Muscle, bone, skin, everybody. Everyone's happy. When glucose levels are low, however, low range of normal, only those cells that don't require insulin get to use the glucose, the heart, kidneys, the brain, and so on, while the insulin-dependent cells like your muscles are then forced to use less efficient alternative fuels. In this setting, the counter-regulatory hormone glucone, glucagon is also secreted, and various processes are then activated, which begin to actually create glucose through the breakdown of glycogen and fats and protein, all of which are then, in, are then enacted in order to try and restore the normal stasis of glucose levels. Now, this system is incredibly tightly controlled. Healthy people keep their glucose levels within a pretty narrow range of glucose concentrations under a really wide range of environmental conditions. Even in periods of prolonged starvation, glucose levels will be maintained at the low end of this range in order to fuel those glucose-dependent cells. The body's pretty amazing in this regard. Now, consider what happens in diabetes. Diabetics have lost the ability to produce insulin, or in the case of type 2 diabetics, they've just become resistant to the hormone's usual effects. As a result, glucose can't get into the cells and continues to rise higher and higher, causing all manner of problems. For a long time, diabetics would check their glucose levels periodically and then inject themselves with insulin depending on the level of sugar that they obtained on the device that was measuring the glucose in their blood. But this was not the best way of managing disease, and inevitably blood glucose levels would run high and long-term health effects would result. Over the past couple of decades, continuous glucose monitoring, coupled with an insulin pump, has allowed diabetics to much more precisely control their blood glucose in real time and decrease many of the long-term effects of the disease. Now, this continuous glucose monitoring has come to endurance sport. The premise, being promised by companies with names like Super Sapiens and the much less excitingly named January AI, is that knowing your glucose level on an ongoing basis will allow you to better control your metabolism and fueling in order to improve your performance. They also claim to help you by letting you know which foods, quote, spike your blood sugar, end quote, though they don't really explain why this should be considered a particularly terrible thing for a non-diabetic. Now, before I get into some of the science that has been done on this, let me just take a second to parse these claims at face value. As I've just finished explaining, 
your body already has a remarkably precise and responsive system for continuously monitoring and responding to internal glucose levels. Unless you're a diabetic, what I would expect to see from an external monitoring device is that everything's working as expected, and that after I eat, my glucose is going to go up transiently, and the longer I go after eating, the closer it will get to the lower end of the normal range. Both of these companies suggest that poorly controlled glucose levels can contribute to disease in the long term, and this is absolutely true. But there's no evidence to suggest that in non-diabetics that glucose increases after eating, a completely normal phenomenon, or that the magnitude of those increases has any effect whatsoever on long-term health outcomes. Okay, but what about athletic performance, you ask? Is there data to suggest that this kind of information can help athletes inform their training and racing? So far, the answer is not so much, but let's take a look at what little there is. I should mention that neither of these companies lists any science to support their claims. That doesn't stop them from making them, of course, but to their credit, I will admit that they don't come out and make any outlandish or particularly direct statements. Instead, they're pretty vague with what you can expect. Super Sapiens makes the most direct statements about performance, referring to a metric that they've created, the Glucose Performance Zone, or GPZ. According to them, each athlete's GPZ is different, and both rapid drops and increases in glucose levels, quote, can lead to fatigue, lethargy, lack of focus, and lack of energy. Athletes want to avoid big spikes and dips in their glucose levels, and without this device, fueling properly is nearly impossible and an unknown black box. Now, this is an outlandish statement, as I'm quite certain that almost everyone listening will have found that they've been quite sufficiently able to fuel very successfully without this device in their lives. Now, as for factual evidence, there are only a couple of studies out there on this tech with relation to athletes. The first one was out of Japan and looked at ultra runners, but only seven of them, and essentially found that, surprisingly, all of the runners' glucose levels stayed within the normal range throughout the test. Okay, maybe not so surprisingly. There was a suggestion that higher glucose levels in the blood correlated with higher running speeds in some of the participants, but because the participants were running on varying terrain, the authors couldn't really be sure. So essentially, not that helpful. A second study from 2017 was a bit better designed, but also small. Done with cyclists, this study showed that, again, glucose levels fluctuated, but for the most part stayed within the normal range, and in almost all cases, didn't really correlate with performance. So, not a whole lot to go on here, but certainly nothing that would suggest that this technology is going to be anything more than a novelty. I spoke with Dr. Lisa Kosminski, an endocrinologist at Denver Health Medical Center, who works extensively with diabetics, and she really, frankly, was appalled that this device was even being considered for athletes. To paraphrase what she said to me after I explained the intent of these two companies, quote, why in the world would anyone need to know this, and what would they expect it to tell them? They can't change how their bodies react to glucose anyways, end quote. I had already made up my mind on this, but Lisa's comments really sealed the deal, because if we return to Sankoff's paradigm of training data, we can see that continuous glucose monitoring does not tell you anything that you don't already know, and is not a data point that allows you to do anything differently, in which case, it's not a metric that I need to collect. Do you have a question for me to consider answering on the show? Well, email it to me at tri underscore doc at iCloud. Like me, Jason Friedman is an emergency physician, successful endurance athlete, okay, he's much more successful, and a coach. Unlike me, 
Jason spends none of his time in the pool or on a bike, but instead he toils many hours on the trail, training for and racing ultra-distance running events. And also, unlike me, he's had tremendous success in that arena. In his career, Jason has been the USATF National Age Group Champion for the 100K Trail Run, has top 10 finishes at national championships at the 50K, 50 Mile, 100K, 100 Mile, and 24 Hours, and secured the big buckle at 2018 Leadville 100 in 2240. He also produces the Pain Cave Podcast that features discussions with runners, coaches, and scientists on all aspects of ultra running. Well, I'm really excited to have Jason here today on the TriDoc Podcast, so thanks so much for joining me, Jason. Thanks for having me, Jeff. This is going to be really fun. Now, people frequently hear about triathlon and will remark to triathletes that what we do sounds pretty crazy. And yet, I can tell you that as triathletes, we frequently make the same remark to ultra runners. So what was your background in running and how did you make the transition to ultras? Uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a, a comment that I get pretty often <laughs> in terms of the craziness, especially from my triathlete uh, friends and training buddies. Um, yeah, no, I, I've uh, been a runner for a long time. I started running in um, middle school and, and ran through high school and college. And um, after college, I was, you know, training like a lot of people do for marathons and road races and such. Uh, and I was doing that while I was in medical school and residency. And, you know, I was always I, I, throughout my career, I always was kind of most successful at the upper ends of the distances, uh, you know, in whatever cohort I was in. So in high school, you know, running uh, two miles and five Ks and in college running cross country and 10 Ks and then marathons on the roads. And, and it just seemed like I was I was more successful the, the longer the races went. So after a few years of kind of banging my head against the marathon road racing scene wall, uh, I finally uh made the move into trail and ultra running in 2006. And, um, yeah, it was a, it was a pretty, pretty smooth transition. A, a lot of marathon training really crosses over, especially to shorter ultra racing. And, you know, once I started running on trails and stuff, it was, uh, there was no turning back at that point. <laughs> I love the concept of shorter ultra runs. Uh, <laughs> now, I, you know, as a triathlon coach, it seems like every week I'm hearing from one of my athletes about a running injury and, and running is frequently the root of most injury concerns for triathletes, especially, uh, I, I'm, I've always been curious about how ultra runners avoid injuries and, uh, when those injuries, I mean, they're inevitable, they're going to happen at some point, how they work through them when they can't shift their training to another sport like swimming or biking as is possible for sure. us in triathlon. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting that you say that, that most triathlon injuries come from the running component. I mean, I think that's, that's probably twofold, right? Like one is, I mean, swimming and biking is just, you're going to be less injury prone just by the nature of the sport. Like both of those are non-contact sports and they should theoretically be easier on the musculoskeletal system anyway. Right. Yep. Um, but you know, the other thing I think that predisposes triathletes to running injuries is that you just don't, you don't have the time to focus. I mean, you have to spread your, your training time over different disciplines so much that I, I think you don't have the time to do a lot of the kind of baseline underlying training that, uh, really leads to the musculoskeletal adaptations that kind of protect a lot of, uh, ultra runners from some of those injuries. So, you know, I, I don't have really experienced coaching or, or doing triathlons, but, you know, just from observing my, uh, like I said, some friends of mine who are, are serious triathletes and, and do, you know, pretty heavy training in this area, 
you know, they're running three, maybe four runs per week. And so by necessity, to get the most out of those runs, those runs tend to be fairly high intensity. So if they're running, you know, three runs per week, one of those might be a long run, one of those might be like a tempo run, and one of those might be like an interval type workout. And, you know, you're lucky maybe if you get a fourth run, that's just like an easy day. Um, and so that that's kind of, you know, it's maximizing the amount of kind of stress that you're going to be able to get out of each training session and, and, you know, kind of push your fitness gains a little bit based on, you know, limited training time and training exposure for that discipline. But that also, you know, that, that kind of rides a little bit of an edge of, um, of, you know, danger in terms of just, uh, too much intensity without enough time to recover. Um, and I think a lot of what helps kind of protect and, and not to say that ultra runners don't get injured, but I think a lot of what helps, uh, maybe mitigate some of that risk for ultra runners who are, you know, doing six, seven days of training and maybe, you know, eight or more runs per week or something is that we have kind of this base of, you know, slow, easy running that we can kind of fall back on. And, and, you know, the, the kind of physiological stress of those runs is not very much. And what it does actually is I think it gives you a little bit of kind of adaptation and protection against some of these overuse injuries, you know, a little bit paradoxically. So, you know, that's kind of a long answer to the first part of that question. Um, in terms of when injuries do come, cause they do, um, I think a lot of, you know, a lot of ultra runners do have, um, you know, kind of cross training built into their regular, uh, schedules, particularly people who have been doing it for a long time because, you know, uh, there is a, uh, definitely a risk of burnout and a risk of breakdown among folks who have been doing this for a while. So the, uh, people that you, that you run into or that you follow that have had long successful careers and have been able to sustain it over years, a lot of that is because they're not doing just running seven or 12 months a year, seven days a week. You know, a lot of them have, uh, uh, take a full off season where maybe they'll, they'll do some Nordic skiing or ski mountaineering is a, a really popular one right now where, you know, you'll see some of the top ultra runners who are, you know, from December to February or, or even longer are really just in the mountains and, you know, they're maybe having big aerobic, uh, efforts in the mountains. Um, but without a lot of the pounding and, and that sort of thing. And, and that does kind of mitigate some of that. And so, you know, um, there is, there is definitely a, a subset of runners that are able to, when they are injured, um, move into some other, you know, cross training type things to maintain fitness and, you know, also use those things proactively to avoid injury. Yeah. You know, going back to that first part of the answer where, you know, you talked about why triathletes can get themselves into trouble almost because they're running less than they need to. Uh, I can attest to that in that my best, my most successful year as a runner came in a year when my own coach was having me run every single day. Um, it, you know, it wasn't like, you know, an hour to an hour and a half every day, but if it was only even for half an hour, it was just right. getting out there and running at a slow pace to do exactly as you said, just kind of, you know, get the body used to the, uh, you know, the, the, the adaptations that are needed to be able to sustain a, a higher pace when race day came and to right. be able to build that foundation for the training uh, intensity that would come later in the year. And I, I definitely think there's something to that. I also think that there's uh, something to, you know, when I look at 
ultra runners or dedicated runners, they definitely, for the most part, have a different body type than triathletes. I mean, and that's just because of the necessity to bike 112 miles. Uh, you know, triathletes tend to have, you know, bigger quads, bigger uh, hamstrings. And, you know, in order to push the pedals for that much time, and then they get to the run and they have to carry that muscle mass uh, over the course of the run. And I, I think right. there's a reason that the fastest runners in triathlon are not even in the same zip code as the fastest true runners. And it, it's probably in part because of that. They're just, uh, the, you know, they, they need to develop those leg muscles for cycling and that actually impairs their ability to run at the top speeds that you might see if they were dedicating themselves purely to running. I think that's a really good point. And I don't, I know, I don't want to imply that, you know, when I say that triathletes aren't quote, you know, running enough or anything like that, but I think you get into this, this, um, kind of vicious cycle of if if you only have x number of days or x number of sessions that you can dedicate to running you get into this mindset where you have to maximize you know each one of those and so each of them is going to be a little bit harder than maybe it needs to be and a lot of folks who are only you know doing three or four runs a week even on runs that are supposed to be their easy days they're probably going a little bit too hard um i think and, and your experience i'm sure uh, backs this up as a coach the biggest thing that I tell people when I first start working with them is that for the vast majority of, of runners out there, uh, they're doing their easy runs too hard and their hard runs too easy, right? You're kind of yeah. falling everything into this kind of middle zone. And I think that's a, an easy trap to fall into where, you know, you know what an easy quote unquote easy run feels like and you go out and you're just doing that. Um, but it's probably, you know, we, 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 especially if you're limited in time, we don't want to kind of feel like we're slacking off or we, we feel like we need to get something out of this session or whatever it is. And we wind up kind of pushing ourselves a little bit too hard, but, um, you know, it doesn't necessarily feel that way, but you know, for your system and for your body, it's, you're not getting the, the benefit of an easy run, which is really to recover. And, um, and when you're not able to recover and, and that kind of chronic cumulative stress builds up over time, then you're not able to get as much out of the hard workouts as you really need to, because the hard workouts really should be really hard. And uh, if you're if you're not recovering fully in between those hard workouts, you're just not going to be able to push yourself as hard as you need to to get the full benefit out of it. So one of the main things that I do with with a lot of my athletes who have been doing this for a while and kind of stagnate is slow down your easy runs. You know, um, the vast majority of of uh, marathon runners, you know, recreationally or whatever, uh, and, and ultra marathoners, you know, you don't need to be doing your, your easy runs at, you know, seven thirty or eight minute pace that, I mean, a lot, and a lot of people can, but, um, you, you don't need to, and, and that's probably maladaptive. And I, I like to get people to slow down and run, you know, eight minute, eight thirty, nine minute, 10 minute pace on, on easy runs. And, you know, yeah, it's going to take you a little longer. That's okay. Um, but then you're going to really be able to get more out of your harder days. Boy, really, it, it is such a hard message to get across, too, because as you said, you know, as as age group athletes who, you know, work a full time job, you, you 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 feel like you are already limited in your training. And and like you said, you know, they, they feel like, oh, I got to get out there and I got to maximize this by going as hard as I can every time. And getting that message across that slow and easy uh, is many times doing more for you than going hard. Uh, it's it's something I still struggle with as a coach, and and it took me a while as an athlete. So I, I understand uh, why it's so hard to get that message across. But it's uh, oh for sure. It, it's for good. Sure. To, it's good to hear it in the running world as well. Yeah. No. I. I mean, and it's funny because I've I've 
me personally, I've never really had an issue with kind of, at least to my mind, to, I've never really had an issue with slowing down on my easy runs. Um, and it goes back to college where kind of every run can kind of get into a little bit of a hammer fest sometimes. Um, and, uh, but it's just not, it's just not sustainable long term. You know, the, the, you, you can be successful, um, for a year or 18 months or something running hard all the time. But if you really want to enjoy the sport and you really want to progress over the course of, you know, years of the course of a career, it really is. There's no substitute for just the consistency of just being healthy and fresh and able to train over a long period of time. And if you get into this kind of injury, hard run, you know, recover, burnout cycle, you're just never going to get you're never going to reach your your ultimate potential and you're going to lose enjoyment, which is really the main thing. I mean, none of us are, you know, going to be pros at this. So, I mean, or very few of us. So, you know, if we're not enjoying it and and we're, you know, breaking ourselves down in pursuit of, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, ephemeral goal, then what's the point really? Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. So tell me, you know, what is it that makes a successful ultra runner? What, what, what is it in the, in the individual that uh, makes them not just a marathon runner, but really a successful long, you know, 50 mile, hundred K runner? Yes, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I think, you know, from the standpoint of like, what are the characteristics that make a successful ultra runner? I mean, certainly, um, you know, there has to be some appreciation for, and I think this goes for anything, but I think you need to have a, a, an appreciation, not only for suffering, but just for the process of kind of everything that goes into being an ultra runner. I mean, you know, it much like triathlons, it's, it's a lifestyle. It's something that's going to, um, you know, impact various aspects of your life. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, you know, family and work and everything else and, and your social life. And it doesn't have to, you know, you don't have to necessarily, you know, give up things that you love, but you are going to have to make choices and adjustments and, and stuff like that, uh, in order to kind of fit this sort of <laughs> you know, obsession for lack of a better word into, into your lifestyle. So I think, the, the number one thing is, is to be successful and to really enjoy it. You need to appreciate the opportunity that we have to do it. And if you don't, if you can't appreciate that and you can't, um, find the kind of the joy in the, the daily process of, you know, committing to the training and committing to the goal and, um, just committing to, you know, every, everything else that we get out of it, the, the social aspect and the, the, the fitness and, and being outdoors and everything else, it, it, you really, you need to be able to, um, find that commitment to the, to the consistent application of effort. Um, and I think that's kind of the number one thing, um, you know, beyond that, certainly it's, it's, uh, helpful to, uh, as with any endurance pursuit, it's helpful to have a, a healthy relationship with the idea of discomfort mm -hmm. and, uh, with the idea of, um, you know, long-term effort and, and, uh, delayed gratification. And, you know, beyond that, ultra running is a big tent. And there's, as, as you alluded to in the introduction, there's, um, there's a, a variety of, of distances. There's a variety of, uh, surfaces and, and kind of terrains that we compete on. And, um, you know, the, the subsets of ultra running could, you know, in some ways be their own sport. I mean, there's a very big difference between, you know, an, an ultra marathon is, is 
technically anything longer than the 26.2 mile distance of a marathon. Um, and that can range from, you know, a 50 K road race, which, you know, takes some of the, uh, the best guys in the world, less than three hours to complete. Uh, and that can go, you know, into, uh, you know, hundred mile races over mountains that can be, uh, multi-day races on a track where people are just trying to rack up as many miles as possible in a certain period of time. Um, it can be stage races through the desert or through jungles where you're, you know, similar to the tour de France where you have a, a set course for the day and then you recover and then you go up the next day and it's a cumulative kind of aspect to it. So, you know, there, there's a, a, a huge diversity of the type of events that, that kind of fit under the rubric of ultra running. Yeah. And so the, you know, the, the qualities that are going to build a successful ultra runner are going to vary. Uh, depending on, you know, the, the specific concentration of that person or, or whatever the event is that they're training for um, in terms of, you know, physiologic or, or other qualities. But I think, like I said, it, I think, a, you know, uh, some healthy aspect of determination, some some healthy relationship to uh, work and effort, uh, a nice uh, comfort level with the idea of suffering, and then really just a, a an appreciation of the opportunity that we get and, and the, the process of it, I think are the, those are the main things that, and, and it helps to be an introvert. An introvert, right. Cause you're out there on your own for quite a long time by yourself. Yeah. You right? spend yeah. a lot of time in your own head. Yeah. Um, so is anybody who's listening, who uh, maybe has been doing triathlon for a while and has toyed with the idea of doing ultra running, what's the best way for someone to transition to that, uh, you know, or to dabble in it if they if they want to give it a try uh, in a manner that would be safe so that they're not going to be likely to get injured and, uh, uh, you know, maintain their ability to, you know, keep going longer and longer distances after or potentially return to triathlon if they wanted to? Sure, sure. So, you know, the biggest thing I tell people when they're considering moving up from shorter distances to ultras is, first of all, um, it's easier, it's easier than you think in in some ways. Um, You know, a a 50k as which is kind of the shortest um, standardized ultra distance is really not that much different from a marathon. It seems a lot further, but it really isn't. And the biggest difference that I tell people is just fueling. And I think uh, that's where a lot of triathletes have kind of a, a bit of an advantage coming to our sport is that you guys are really used to the idea of kind of dialing in your fueling, whereas a lot of half marathoners and marathoners, I think, um, take a little bit of a seat of, seat of their pants approach to it. Um, so if, you, if you're dialed in on your fueling and you're used to the idea of taking in calories uh, while really working uh, at a, at a you know, fairly high intensity then you're already one step ahead of the game. Um, from a training standpoint, it, it really shouldn't have to, it doesn't have to be, again, depending on on the type and the location of the event that you're doing, it doesn't have to be that much different from whatever you would normally do to train for a road marathon. Um, I tell most people that if you, if you can comfortably and, you know, comfort obviously is a relative term when we're talking about any of these things, but if you can complete a marathon, in a reasonable amount of time, then, then you can run a 50 mile, uh, trail race or road race. It's going to take you a while, but there's, there's not much different that you need to do in terms of training or, or anything else other than, um, you know, being, getting used to the idea more mentally than anything else of being out there for nine, 10, 11, 12 hours or whatever it's going to be, uh, and to practice your fueling. 
Um, the easiest way to make, um, I guess, an adjustment to your training that would allow for success in ultra running without actually probably impacting your overall training too much is this concept of just doing back-to-back long runs. So, you know, for a lot of uh, marathon and, you know, kind of classic marathon training, you, you have this kind of sacrosanct, you know, long run on Saturday or Sunday where you're doing, you know, 16 or 18 or 20 or 22 miles or something like that. And, you know, you, you kind of bank uh, some easy days on either side of that. So you get the most out of that run. And that makes sense. Um, but, you know, the easiest way to kind of get re- to get ready to jump from a marathon up to, let's say, a 50 mile is to do that 22, 20 to 22 mile long run on a Saturday. And then instead of, you know, a day off on Sunday or a real easy day, come back and do a 14 to 16 miler. Um, and what that does is that gets your your legs used to the concept of kind of really uh, running for a long period of time while tired. And that's a very easy way to kind of simulate the stress of an ultra without actually having to do a 30 or a 40 mile long run, which can be you know hard to carve out the time for and and is a, a pretty big effort in and of itself. Um, so that's really the easiest training uh, modification and and it shouldn't really make too much of a difference. Uh, otherwise, if you can just build in a little bit more recovery at another point in the week. Um, and then from a, from a racing standpoint, what I tell people all the time, and this isn't, um, you know, something that I came up with on my own, but, uh, the easiest, I I think the easiest intro to ultra running is to do a timed race. Um, so timed races, basically it's, you know, in triathlon and in most endurance sports, we're used to the idea of fixed distance races. Uh, timed races are actually some of the earliest types of uh, ultra races, and, and those go back to, you know, really the the end of the uh, 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, where, you know, for the most part, these were held in, in a lot of cases on indoor tracks and still are held on outdoor tracks quite often or on paved one mile loops or something like that. And the concept is exactly what it sounds like. It's you have six hours, you have 12 hours, you have 24 hours, you have 48 hours, whatever it may be. And uh, the winner is the person who uh, covers the most distance. So the nice thing about a timed race for a novice ultra runner is that you can eliminate a lot of the variables that we uh, need to worry about in, you know, a kind of a longer trail race or something like that. So uh, you don't have to carry a lot of fuel or or um, or hydration or anything because you're going to be passing, you know, the start finish or your your bag uh, every mile or, or sometimes every quarter mile or whatever it may be. So, you know, you can really, it's a lot of the, the, um, kind of adjustment to ultra running is in the problem solving aspect of it because stuff is going to go wrong all the time. And this makes the problem solving a lot easier. If you have uh, a spot where, you know, you have all your blister care stuff, you have your change of shoes, if there's an issue or a different shirt, if you're starting to chafe or, you know, you can refill your water bottle very quickly or just, you know, you don't even have to carry anything with you. And then the other nice thing is the idea of, not having a fixed distance. So there's no, there's no fear of, you know, not making it or not finishing quote unquote, uh, it, the, the distance is as far as you want or are able to go in that, in that period of time. So for people who are interested and maybe a little bit nervous about moving into ultras, I like to tell them, try a six hour race. Um, there's a pretty good chance you're going to get to run 50 K or more in six hours. Um, and you're going to get a sense of what that feels like. And also it's going to eliminate a lot of those logistical problems and without having to kind of focus on, 
you know, I have to get through 50 K or I have to get through 50 miles. Um, it does free you up a little bit mentally to, uh, just kind of enjoy the process a little bit more. Yeah, that's a, that's a great suggestion. That's actually something I wasn't familiar with. And, uh, I think that makes a ton of sense. And I can, I, I could totally see that being a, a, like a gateway drug for ultra running. Yeah. Oh, um, for sure. I just want to go back to something you said about the back-to-back long runs, um, yeah. because that's really intriguing to me as well. Um, I imagine, you know, one of the reasons a long run is tiring is because you're running it close to race pace, or at least your targeted race pace. Um, I would imagine that when you're doing back-to-back long runs like that, you're not going to go out and run it at the same kind of pace. You're going to run it at a much more sustainable pace. Would that be correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's right. And, you know, this gets into a little bit of, um, uh, you know, the question of, we talk about specificity in training, and I'm sure you guys talk about that a lot in the trial world as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, in general, we want our training to progress towards, you know, from, from less specific towards more specific. So you're going to want to do close to the event that you're training for the types of runs that are uh, most going to mimic the conditions under which you'll be racing and the types of kind of uh, efforts or intensities that you're going to need to put out in those races. But, you know, for a, an ultra race, your race pace, quote unquote, is going to be significantly slower than, you know, your lactate threshold pace or, or you know, certainly your VO2 max pace or anything that you would normally be used to considering as some sort of race effort. Um, so, you know, you, you actually, if you're going to do a back-to-back long run or something like that, as you get closer to your, your, um, ultra, your first ultra, um, that actually is going to get a little bit more specific if you're going to slow down. Um, you know, I, I think the most successful ultra runners certainly in the last 10 to 15 years have started training more like half marathon and marathon and 10 K runners and that they're doing a lot more, uh, hard interval work and that sort of stuff but none of them are racing at those intensities. Uh, you're, you know, even the fastest guys in the world are still running an ultra by necessity, obviously much slower than, you know, even their lactate threshold pace. So slowing down those long runs is actually going to be more specific to the type of stress that you're going to see. And it might actually, you know, closer, more closely approximate quote unquote race pace for an ultra um, then you would right. Then you would normally attach to uh, you know a long run in um, half marathon or marathon or you know Olympic triathlon training. Right. Um, now I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you this last question, and that is because uh, even people who have never heard of ultra running or have never thought about ultra running, I think everybody is now familiar with the Barkley Marathon as uh, <laughs> sort of the iconic ultra run uh, because it's made the big time in terms of its Netflix documentary. Um, right. I, I'm curious. Uh, as somebody who actually is an ultra runner and somebody who is as accomplished as you, uh, w- what's your perspective on the Barkley marathon? Yeah. So I have a, I have an interesting kind of, I don't want to say I have an interesting relation. I don't have any relationship to the Barkley marathon per se, but I have an interesting kind of, uh, love hate, uh, feeling towards the Barkley marathon. Um, you know, the Barkley is a, for those, for those who may not be familiar. And like you said, most people I think are who have even the vaguest, uh, idea about ultra running at this point. It, the Barkley is a, uh, hundred plus ish mile quote unquote trail race in the, uh, in the mountains in, in Western Tennessee. And it's, uh, five loops. Uh, each loop is approximately 20 miles. Although most Mar- Barkley veterans will tell you the loops are closer to 25 miles. And it's, um, on mostly unmarked trails. There's no trail, uh, markings to follow. It's, it's a lot of bushwhacking. It's a lot of route finding. 
Um, and there are a lot of kind of obstacles that are kind of thrown in the way of, of finishing. And, and this is a race that's been going on for, I forget how long now, at least uh, 30 years and has had a total of, I think, 16 finishers in, in those 30 years. So this is, um, you know, one, one of the legendary events in our sport. The, you know, I, I love... I love the idea behind the conception of Barkley. It's, it's actually a really funny story. And I, you know, I, I appreciate everything that, that Lazarus Lake, uh, Laz, the, the race director and, and originator has done for the sport. Um, what, what bothers me about the Barkley at this point is that it has kind of become shorthand for, um, ultra running. And I think it's, it's like you said, it's become kind of the, uh, the entry point for a lot of people who don't know anything about the sport. And, and this is, you know, right. If you mention you're an ultra runner, the next question that most non runners ask is, Oh, have you done Barkley? <laughs> and, um, you know, Barkley is a, a very specialized subset of a very specialized sport. Uh, but, uh, I think when, when we focus on that as, or, or when that is the focus of the lay public and the lay press, on ultra running, I think we, we really lose appreciation for a lot of the really amazing things that are going on elsewhere in the sport. And not to say that the folks who have finished Barkley and and even attempted Barkley are not doing amazing things themselves. I I don't want to give that impression, but you know, we have some really incredible athletes at the forefront of our sport. Um, you know, people who have run, you know, sub 29 minute, 10 Ks, people who are running, you know, uh, 63 minute half marathons, people who are running two fourteen marathons who are also going out and, you know, uh, racing over mountains, running hundred mile races where they're averaging, you know, seven minute pace or better for a hundred miles. Um, I mean, it, it really is, it's a sport that encompasses so much and really has so much amazing talent. And I think that sometimes some of that talent and some of those, uh, accomplishments get overlooked a little bit because of, I, I, don't, I don't know if that's necessarily fair, but uh, that's kind of the, the that's my my feeling is that that the the attention paid to Barkley um, kind of can overshadow some of these other things sometimes, which I think is is unfortunate. Yeah, I think um, I think that's very fair and, and definitely an assessment that I'm sure is shared uh, across, you know, the ultra running community because. It is. It's it's more of a spectacle than anything else, and uh, obviously the the documentary, you know, <laughs> made it very clear that some of the characters surrounding it are worthy of the spectacle. Right. But it's right. not ultra running. I, I completely agree, and it's it's great to get that insight and uh, that assessment. So I appreciate. Yeah, that, and I don't. Honesty. I don't want to. I don't want to. You know, denigrate. I mean, look, there are some. There are some fantastic ultra runners through whom Barkley has become their their obsession in their lives. I mean. Um, you know, uh, Gary Robbins, who was featured in that, that original um, or, or in, in one of the more recent Barkley movies, is one of the more accomplished trail runners of the last 15, 20 years. He's one. He's a course record holder at the Hurt 100. And he's one. He's got uh, a number of huge wins all over the, the country, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. He's and he's just he's a great guy. He's a, uh, a race director of some of the very successful uh, Pacific Northwest trail races. Um, and for him, Barkley is like the ultimate or has become the ultimate after several, uh, attempts there. And so I don't want to imply that it's not, you know, a worthy pursuit necessarily. I just, you know, the, the sport has enough trouble getting the kind of recognition it deserves. I just don't, I, I don't want that to become kind of the shorthand of everything that we do. It makes complete sense. And I, 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 I 
genuinely appreciate that that perspective. I think it's great. Uh, well, Jason, uh, thank you so much for uh, joining me to, to have this really great conversation about ultra running. I, I consider it much more than just an introduction. It was more of a intermediate introduction to ultra running, and I'm hopeful <laughs> that uh, several of my listeners will uh, take advantage of uh, your knowledge and have a listen to the Pain Cave podcast. I will include links to your website as well as the um, uh, the podcast website and of course uh, your coaching website uh, all in the show notes. Jason, thank you uh, so much for joining me on the TriDoc podcast today to discuss ultra running. Thanks for having me, Jeff. This was a lot of fun. And that's it for another episode. The TriDoc podcast is produced and edited by me, Jeff Sankoff, along with my outstanding intern, Maddie Pesch. You can find the show notes for everything discussed on the show today, as well as archives of previous episodes at the-tridoc-podcast.captivate.fm. Do you have questions about any of the issues discussed on this episode, or do you have a question that you'd like me to consider answering on a future episode? Well, send me an email at tri underscore doc at icloud.com. If you're interested in coaching services, please visit tridoccoaching.com or lifesportcoaching.com, where you can find a lot of information about me and the services that I provide. You can also follow me on the Tridoc Podcast Facebook page, Tridoc Coaching on Instagram, and the Tridoc Coaching YouTube channel. If you enjoyed this podcast, I hope that you'll consider leaving me a rating and a review, as well as subscribe to the show wherever you download it. And don't forget my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash Podcast, where you can find lots of bonus content and become a very welcome supporter. The music heard at the beginning and the end of the show is Radio by Empty Hours and is used with permission. This song and many others like it can be found at ReverbNation.com, where I hope that you'll visit and give small independent bands a chance. The TriDoc Podcast will be back again soon with another medical question for me to answer and another interview with someone in the world of multisport. Until then, train hard, train healthy.